tonight is the question and answer night. It would have been last Sunday evening, but uh, due to my not being able to deliver the lesson, I moved it till tonight. And I will tell you that we will not have a question and answer night in June and July because of our summer series. I know it's very hard to believe, but three weeks from tonight, our summer series begins with Brother David Sane. And so I encourage you to make your plans. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want you to submit more questions. These work together uh, many times. And so if you have questions that you want to be addressed in a lesson, uh, then I encourage you to write it down on a piece of paper and give it to me, or you can email it or whatever, however way you choose to get it to me. Many of us struggle with properly interpreting difficult passages. When the book of Peter, 2 Peter, was written, Peter addressed this in chapter 3 in verses 15 and 16. He says to consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, of these things, which some things are hard to understand. When he says some things are hard to understand, there are portions of Scripture which all of us struggle with. But then he goes on to say, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destructions as they do the rest of the Scriptures. There are people who will take God's Word and twist it and make it say something that it was never intended to say. One book that is notoriously difficult for most of us is the book of Revelation. The reason is because of the figurative language. When people turn to the book of Revelation and they read about the number of the beast being 666, and they start reading about dragons, and they start reading about diadems, all of a sudden things become incredibly difficult. Well, as we have discussed each month, there are three basic types of questions. Those that are textual, those that are topical, and then those that are practical. Tonight's questions both come from the book of Revelation and both would come under the category of textual. So let's begin with our first question. Who are the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, as well as chapter 14 and verses 1 through 5. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put those scriptures on the screen in front of us. We're going to read them, and then we're going to begin detailing our answer. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, were sealed. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers, playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were 
redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are those who are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As I prepared this, I realized there's so many things I cannot deal with. So I'm going to presuppose a few things, and I'm going to mention these just very briefly. Number one, that the book of Revelation was written in figurative language, which is actually known as apocalyptic language. If you study the book of Revelation, you realize that numbers and symbols and colors and things such as that have a meaning. For instance, the number three represents the completion spiritually, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The number ten is the representation of human perfection. You have five fingers on each hand and the two of them together make ten. Or you can have the number seven, which is a combination of of like the four corners of the earth and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and is the number of perfection. The the color white represents purity. The color black represents death. The pale represents sickness. Red represents bloodshed. I could go on and on, but to point out that it is figurative language. Number two, the figures were understood by those who first read them. That is, John's readers understood what John was writing to them because it was a revelation. If you and I understood what they understood then, then we can understand the book of Revelation. It is a letter to reveal, that is, the very first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have to understand that that was a message to reveal, but the symbols also concealed They concealed it from John's persecutors so they would not have understood everything that John had to say. When you approach the book of Revelation, it is a progressive revelation. It shows the conquering of the Lamb over the forces of evil. In fact, if you pick up your Bible, the very first thing that you will notice, by the time you get to chapter 4, there's the picture of the great white throne. Chapter 5 There's no one able to take the scroll out of the hand of the one sitting on the throne except the Lamb. And that scroll, no one can unloose or break the seals except the Lamb. And so what you have is actually a scroll. Think of a a roll. And you have written on it and you roll it up a little bit and you place a seal. And you roll it up a little bit further and you place another seal. And there are seven seals, and you read a little bit, you break another seal, you read a little bit, you break another seal for all those seven seals. When you get to the end of the seven seals, there are seven trumpets. And the trumpets were there to announce something. You blow the trumpet, and it announces something. You blow another trumpet, and it announces something else. By the time you get to the seventh trumpet, you are introduced to seven bowls of God's wrath. You know, just imagine you've got a a bowl here of some sort of liquid contents. And you take it and you pour it out. The picture is, is that God's wrath was going to be poured out on the evil folks. 
seven seals which led to seven trumpets which led to seven bowls of God's wrath. When you get to chapter 7, the seventh seal is broken. That seventh seal introduces now the seven trumpets. So I want you to, to see where we're at in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not meant to be taken literal. And you say, how do you know that? In chapter 1 and verse 20, he said, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. He's starting now to give you the identification of what these symbols mean. Well, now we get to chapter 7 and verse 4. And you are introduced to the 144,000. And what he tells us in chapter 7 and verse 4 is that they were sealed. What does that mean? And Why were they sealed? Well, I pointed out to you that the people who read John's message knew what John was talking about. And here's what they would know. If you'll go back with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to have to move this along rather rapidly so we'll be able to fully grasp the message. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. What you have is a picture of here is a city and you have it being surrounded by people ready to bring about vengeance. Same message that you have in the book of Revelation. Suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each one with a battle axe in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn by his side. I want you to imagine, here are these guys wielding these big battle axes. They're ready to start killing people, but there's somebody with them separate. He's not wearing battle garb. He's wearing linen. And instead of having strapped to his side a scabbard with a sword, he has an inkhorn. And what is his job? If you will notice, beginning with verse 3, the latter... The last two lines of the slide. And he called to the man with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city and through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. In other words, I want you to go through before you start killing and I want you to find the good people. And I want you to put a mark on them. And the mark is to protect them. You don't kill them. He says in verse 5 to the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. And do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. You see, John's writer, readers would have understood this figure. And so when you get to chapter 7, he said, I saw the 144,000, and he says, whom God had sealed. The seal was an indication of ownership. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, 
Paul would write, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows them who are his, those who are his. Does God know in this audience at this time those of us who are his and those of us who are not? Absolutely he does. In Revelation, God wanted them to know he knew who they were. They had been marked for his protection and they'll experience protection from God's wrath. But now the question says, who are these people? You take the numbers, 12 times 12, which gives you 144, times tens, times tens, times ten, which is a thousand. You have the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. You say, oh, well, you're just stretching it there. Well, listen to Revelation 21, 12. And she had a great and high wall, 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. You drop down to verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, you have the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, the New Testament, the 12 apostles. You 12 times 12 times 10 brings you to your 144,000. The symbolism is definitely there. But he says in chapter 7 and verse 4, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And someone says, well, does this represent Old Testament Israel? No. Why not? Because if you begin chapter 7 and verse 5, and he begins to list all the 12 tribes, the tribe of Ephraim is not there, the tribe of Dan is not there, but the tribe of Joseph is listed there. This is just like Galatians 6 and verse 16 where he says, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Israel represents God's people, the Lord's church today. But lest you miss a little more, when you get to chapter 7 and the question arises, Who are these? Notice what he says. Then the elders answered and saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. When I go to 1 John 1 and verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, Son, cleanses us from all sins. We read from Peter that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from our aimless conduct received by tradition from the fathers, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. Acts 20 verse 28, he tells him that he purchased the church with his own blood. These people to whom he is speaking of, they are the church. They're Christians. But you say, well, is there any difference between chapter 7 and chapter 14? In chapter 7, they are marked to be protected from God's wrath. However, by the time you get to chapter 14... They are now martyrs, not experiencing the wrath of God, 
but those who've given their lives. They are described according to chapter 14, verse 4, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and the Lamb. The first fruits. This is not a literal number. I don't know how many of you have had conversations with people who are Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had a number of conversations with them. And what they will tell you is is that there are exactly 144,000 people who get to go to heaven. Not one less, not one more. That that's the exact number. And when you begin to press them, well, are there any spaces left? Oh, no, no, all 144,000 spaces have been spoken for. All 144,000 represents those who in the past have been Jehovah's Witnesses, so nobody new gets to go there. They say, but you can be a part of the earthly class. Those are the great multitude who will dwell on the face of a refurbished earth. That's the reason why they often want to talk about a refurbished earth is because they want you to believe that you can live here eternally. But now, if you want to be literal, here's some things you need to observe. Chapter 14, verse 4, the first part of that verse. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the one who follows the Lamb wherever he goes. Here's some things you need to observe from this. That means there will be no married men, no women, because they've got to be virgins. You can't be a married woman. And they're not defiled with women. They're, they're men. That would also mean there would be no Gentiles because if you're going to say they're from all the tribes of Israel, then you put yourself in a position of saying there's some great notables from the Bible that would not even be in heaven, including among people like Abraham. You see, there's a real problem with a view that interprets this as literal. I know that's not as full of an answer as I'd like to give, but I've still got another whole question to go. What is the battle of Armageddon mentioned in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16? Let's look at that passage. And they gathered them together in the place called the Hebrew Armageddon. That's what the Bible says about Armageddon. That's the mention of it. But I go back to the foundation that I've tried to provide earlier. The seven seals that led to seven trumpets that led to seven bowls of God's wrath. And Revelation 16 describes the bowls of God's wrath being poured out, poured out on them. The sixth bowl introduces the battle. So if you will, the battle is not described here. Look with me at chapter 16, verses 14 through 16. For they are the spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. I want you to see in this that 
there is leading up to the fact that there is an appeal to try to draw as many as possible into this battle called the Battle of Armageddon. What is very interesting is the description of the battle in the verses that follow. Look with me at verses 17 and following here in this context. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Stop with me right there. Battle's over. That's the battle. Someone says, well, I, I'm looking for all of the, the, the grand details of this. No, the, there's been the invitation for the battle. The seventh angel pours out his bowl of wrath and it's done. God wins, the devil loses. Someone says, well, I want it more embellished than that. The Bible says it is done. Well, that's, that's very simple. Oh, but there will be a little bit of detail that follows. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and a great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, a great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hell from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone was the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, since that plague was exceedingly great. What you see is not the battle. What you see, the battle's done. What you see is the wrath of God coming upon the enemies of God. And their mourning, if you will, their sadness in the experience of all of this. And someone says, I'm confused. What is Armageddon? The word Armageddon, or actually you should put an H in front of it, Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Har means mount. Megiddo, the mount of Megiddo. If you go to where Megiddo is at, it's in the middle of the plain of Jezreel. There's a very fertile plain there that goes from Mount Tabor all the way to the foot of Mount Carmel. And there's this mount right, rises up out of that uh, fertile valley. It's right at the edge of a crossroad where the trade routes used to pass through. And it, because of its strategic nature, a lot of famous battles were fought here. In other words, it's a perfect place for armies to come together and fight. Rather than me running through a list of battles fought here, let me just make reference to one that the Bible calls attention to. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 29, you have Pharaoh Necho, who is the ruler of Egypt. You have the Assyrians, and you have this battle going on, and Josiah, 
is going to get involved. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. It's a place of confrontation. It's a place of battles. When a person is reading the book of Revelation and they see Armageddon, they don't think of the movie a few years ago of Armageddon. They think of the Mount of Megiddo. They think of that place where many famous battles have decisive battles been fought. Obviously, this does not sound like the modern-day spin promoted by the doomsday prophets. There are people who would have you to believe that the battle of Armageddon is some future event in which the children of God are going to be facing this tremendous battle and it's going to affect... But do you remember what we read in chapter 16 and verse 17? When the angel pours out his bowl, it is done. When you fight against God, it's not a protracted battle. When you fight against God, it's not you battle to this level and then you battle this level like armies do today. When you battle against God, you lose. Every time you lose. The book of Revelation obviously has some difficult sections in it. There are passages there that you have to really work hard to understand the figures that are found. I will tell you that the key is the Old Testament. But yet there are some very, very clear sections. And I want to make reference to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, which I think is clear enough for all of us to appreciate. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before the God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the th- their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone was not found in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Folks, there will be a great judgment day, whichever one, small and great, will stand before that great throne and give an account for the lives that they have lived and how they have conducted themselves according to the things written in the books. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, what greater thing could you do than to prepare yourself to live with God eternally? If you are here and want to become a Christian, because of your faith, repent of your sins, confess that faith, and be baptized. If you're a Christian and you need prayers, we can pray with you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?